Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy to have a guest with me today. Uh, Brian Alexander is an internationally known futurist, researcher, writer, speaker, consultant, and teacher working in the field of how technology transforms education. He recently finished Academia Next, The Futures of Higher Education for Johns Hopkins University Press. His two most recent books are Gearing Up for Learning Beyond K-12 and The New Digital Storytelling. I saw Brian MC at the Ithaca Next Wave conference in December and I was struck by his thoughtful, engaging way of leading a conversation about the future of education. Very pleased to welcome Brian to Trending in Education. Brian, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much, Michael. It's great to be here. You're someone who spends a lot of time thinking about the future of education, higher education in particular. Any top level takes on what's on the horizon? Well, there's a lot going on. And I think the U.S. is quite different from the rest of the world because we have a very different financial model for higher education than most of the world. And we also have a kind of different demographic setup. I mean, worldwide, the tone is that every nation wants more and more people to have more and more higher ed experience. I mean, everything from certificates and two-year degrees to graduate school work. And everyone wants to improve the quality of that. So it's a kind of boost for quality and quantity worldwide. In the U.S., though, we have this interesting problem that we may have overbuilt higher education. Our total enrollment grew from basically World War II to about 2012. And it just grew and grew, but, you know, like a factor of 20. I mean, it's really enormous. And then it stopped growing. And in fact, our enrollment has gone down every semester since 2012. Mm -hmm. So it might be that we've passed what I've called peak higher education. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to get better because the demographics are that we are producing fewer and fewer children, like every nation that goes through right. the But we yep. also have the 2008 financial crash. Right. Nathan Graw has been instrumental in identifying that that is a time where we really cut back in reproducing kids. So around 2023 or so, we're going to start seeing fewer and fewer high school graduates of right. campuses that are supporting traditional age undergrads are going to be fighting more and more. We have other problems as well. We have competition from international higher education, yep. which just gets better and better. And we are now getting worse and worse at recruiting international students. On top of this, we have a lot of challenges around technology. So I think one of the great top level things we have to think about first is will higher education keep contracting and if so how do we respond that's a big big box of strategy right there and yeah. the second is how do we respond to technology i mean the right. past decade has seen what some people call the, the rising tech lash you know growing uncertainty distrust if not outright fury at the silicon valley technology giants right you see a little bit of that in higher education as well Mm -hmm. uh, so, and the, the technology issue is just, it's just vast, everything from the flipped classroom to AI to mixed, I mean, it's, it's a huge, huge subject. So that's, that's a, a second top level thing. Sure. Yeah. And it does make me think about online education and the role that it plays in the same conversation in terms of opening up access, but also potentially being a, a real disruptor to the middle tier of traditional U.S. higher education. And then similarly, as more of the modes of education start to disrupt traditional boots on the ground, butts in the seats, higher ed, I, I think that you'll see more disruptive models begin to eat away at the edges. Sadly, Clayton Christensen just passed away, but I think the, the whole concept of the innovator's dilemma 
for higher education is, is a really interesting concept to play with. And as those economics start to, to shift, the role of adjunct faculty is also an interesting aspect to, to the broader ecosystem. I saw that Academia Next is dedicated to adjunct faculty. Can you explain why that is? Sure. And for listeners, especially who are outside of the U.S., who might not know the term, adjuncts refer to faculty members who are usually part-time, who do not have long-term contracts. That is, they are hired or rehired on a semester-by-semester basis, an individual class basis. And they are now the largest population of American faculty, by far. They are what some call the new majority, as the proportion of faculty who are tenure-track continues to shrink. Mm-hmm. And I dedicate the book to them because I think, and this is why I said the dedication, I think based on their size, adjuncts do more than anybody and based on how they're treated with less than anybody to mm-hmm. reform higher education. And by how they're treated, I mean that they don't have the protections of tenure. They often are paid very, very badly. Yeah. Uh, don't have uh, support, everything from healthcare and retirement to uh, staff support or even offices. Right. Uh, and even their ability to organize, you know, which is another topic that, that, that does bubble up from time to time. It, it is. Uh, we have seen uh, adjunct unions form up, mm-hmm. but, but uh, that's very hard to organize. Again, you're talking about largely a part-time population. Yep. Uh, and who are also very sensitive to uh, the fact that they can be retaliated against or simply just not hired again. Right. Uh, and in fact, uh, today, Duquesne University uh, won a, a battle in court to not recognize their uh, adjunct union. I mean, this is not, in a sense, this is academia-specific. In a sense, it's not. It's academia-specific in that this was not done to academia. There was no federal law that said you shall reduce tenure. Higher education made this happen, and and we made it happen by overproducing PhDs Mm -hmm. and by not evilly trying to save costs. Right. Uh, Costs everywhere. Um, Right. We did this to ourselves. But it's also part of the general uh, changes in the labor market in the Mm -hmm. the world in the sense the move towards casualization of labor, the reduction of union behavior. Um, right. I mean, that's, uh, in a sense, academia is a kind of microcosm of what's going on in the rest of higher education. Increasing. Yeah, and, and the economics are frequently the driver of the change within the domain, as opposed to maybe loftier policy considerations. At the end of the day, the majority of these institutions are struggling to meet their budgets that's why the innovator's dilemma does come to mind, where it does feel like there are aspects of the business model, the, the structures of traditional university in jeopardy now as more disruptive new models of just-in-time education, upskilling are emerging. And it does seem like there is some real existential threats that are emerging. I don't know if you have any thoughts of that, particularly around the innovator's dilemma and the idea that Higher education at the scale that it's been built, to your previous point, may just be at a a point in its evolution that it's ready to be disrupted by new models that will emerge from the outside. Do you have any perspective on that? I do. It's it's a tricky question because, you know, when you read Christensen and when you read the uh, uh, articles and book he wrote with Michael Horn, the original Innovator's Dilemma is referring to a simpler industry model. Mm -hmm. 
uh, higher education is uh, in the U.S. is enormously complex. I, I don't mean that as a cliche or as a hand waving. I mean that we have everything from uh, research one universities that are international stars mm -hmm. to community colleges to uh, liberal arts colleges to mm -hmm. state schools, and they really run the gamut. The innovator's dilemma is based on a product or a service, usually a product, um, yep. is much lower cost and often lower quality. Mm -hmm. Well, the the problem is within higher education, we already have a full spectrum of costs. And depending on how you measure it, quality, for example, we often measure quality of education by uh, admissions rates. So mm -hmm. a school like uh, Harvard will be positioned as very high quality because it turns away so many people. Right. Where community colleges and a lot of state schools will look as low quality because they either have open admission or in effect uh, admit everybody. But the prices are also all over the map. So in, in a sense, if you introduce an online school and you want to compete with higher education, what you end up doing is you're really competing up and down the market. You know, you're going to charge $5,000 a semester and well, you're going to compete with some of these schools. You up it to 10,000, you're going to compete with some of those. So right. it's, not, it's not the usual pattern. The a second problem though is that um, the innovation dilemma is based on the idea that something is slightly lower quality uh, manages to get ahead. I, I often think about that in terms of say um, Windows and Mac. Uh, right. Windows is not quite as good interface, but it conquered the world, right? Sure. Uh, in terms of quantity of uh, installs. We haven't quite seen anything like that appear for online education outside of higher ed that really has legs. Uh, we've seen quite a few projects collapse, and we've seen a lot of projects mounted from within higher education. So right. a lot of this is still within the house. There's still a lot right. of- I guess where I was going is more the monolithic credentialing model versus uh, more skills-based competencies, like sort of decomposing the idea of this four-year monolithic bachelor's degree mm -hmm. into more modular components that are right. uh, maybe more like lifelong learning, informal education, as well as a potential disruptor to traditional higher education. That to me does seem like a more fundamental existential threat to the traditional higher ed model the idea that through Linda on LinkedIn or through Coursera or through YouTube, I can receive something somewhat akin to what I would get in a large traditional university uh, context. And I can be credentialed at a more modular, granular way. Agreed that it hasn't fully manifested just yet, but like there still is uh, an alternative model that I think is emerging around workforce development and informal education, lifelong learning, that I think it will be cheaper and will likely be slightly lower quality. So I think there are elements of the innovator's dilemma that are out there, at least at least from my perspective. No, I, I take that point, but, but this leads me to my third disagreement with applying Christensen here, which is that in Christensen's model, the uh, market incumbent is usually riding high. I mean, they're producing mm -hmm. great product, their business is good. Right. Um, and so it's hard, the dilemma, of the, of the titular dilemma is that they would have to undo that great market position in order to compete with the upstart. Mm -hmm. Well, higher ed, again, it's so it's so large and so complex, but large, I mean, yeah. there's like roughly 4,500 institutions in the US, sure. and, which is about a quarter of the world, actually. And so you, you look at that and you think, well, there's a lot of conservatism and there's a lot of entrenchment. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, there's a whole ferment of creativity and development. So yep. people are trying these things. I mean, you have competency-based education, in the upper Midwest, you have people trying out micro-credentials, you have people trying out badges of all kinds. Yeah. Uh, 
and so that's all happening. So the so higher ed is actually you know more flexible and more competitive than it seems. But but what you've identified is a, is a key thing. You get uh, a few examples of people outside of higher ed who are able to offer a very limited product, and this is actually a, a problem within the university, which I'll, I'll come back to. But they offer a product like a coding academy, mm -hmm. or say a, a for-profit program on emergency services or a particular healthcare practice. And they're able to do that because it's very niche, it's very scoped out, it's a very limited product, and they can offer that and try to do it better with better results than higher ed. And sometimes that works, and that, that I think is so far the only case we've really seen. Uh, but it's not happening for things like a history degree. It's always very, very small programs. So if I'm hearing you right, it's that the, the breadth and scope of what we refer to as higher education is a broad enough and innovative enough ecosystem that you think it's self-regulating and, and is really driving a lot of the innovation that will continue to keep its place or its primacy in our understanding of where to get excellence and to stay viable. And you don't see as much of a real disruptive threat from workplace skills development and sort of more modular component-based online delivery. That's where I see I do see the latter model. It's also partly my background. Like I, I've you know, spent right. you know, 20 years doing e-learning development. Right. But it does feel like there's a lot more ability to be flexible, creative, and leverage emerging technology when not tethered to the, the overhead that comes with the institutional aspect of higher education. Yes, generally. It's quite a bit of life in academia in the U.S., mm -hmm. But we're also in a big sprawling system, so we're quite easily capable of having extreme reactionaries and extreme uh, radicals in the same department, much yep. less the same university. So I, I think we can do that, but that doesn't mean that all is good. We have part of the problem is the word university that comes about the idea. Uh, famous California academic leader tried to call the term multiversity. You want to really stretch and contain all of the curriculum, all the intellectual world that you can. You're going to offer mm -hmm. very uncommon languages, very specific sciences and all that. And sometimes people use a shorthand referring to that as trying to imitate Harvard. And basically it's very, very difficult to do. And what's happening that we've been seeing is campuses cutting programs that basically speaking, don't enroll as much as others. Mm -hmm. uh, generally it's pretty predictable which ones. They're often the humanities, often the arts, uh, languages. Sometimes yeah. a science, if it hasn't connected well to grad school or degrees, uh, sometimes education, in part because we're seeing a narrowing of the K through 12 teacher pipeline, but we're also seeing the decline of, as I mentioned before, from demographics of the K through 12 student population. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of campuses are shrinking their curriculum or they're pivoting. So mm -hmm. they shrink by getting rid of the ones that generally speaking, that just aren't bringing in the students. That's the idea. But then they pivot to offering programs that they think will bring in more students. Sometimes they're uh, ones that are established to be popular. You know, so you think about business. It's kind of hard to go wrong offering business. Across STEM, it's uneven, but the, uh, the full spectrum of allied health, I mean, everything from yeah. you know, biology and psychology to surgery, the IT for healthcare, hospital administration. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that, again, this is where the U.S. is unusual. We, we have this 
kind of double threat that is pushing healthcare to be larger and larger. One is demographic. The older we are, the more healthcare we consume. We right. also have this banana system of uh, financing healthcare, which is right. more expensive, less productive, uh, yeah. more complicated. And as a result, it's a great business to get into. I mean, yeah. um, unless we elect President uh, Sanders or Warren and they manage to have a Congress that wants to do what they do and they manage to push all this through within a decade, e- even so, I mean, it's, it's a, you've got like a decade at least of, of this kind of thing shambling along. So if, yeah. if, if that's the case for a lot of colleges and universities, there's no real downside for them in opening a new program in radiology or physical sure. therapy. Uh, and right. so, so we see that kind of growth. It, it may just be that for the majority of campuses that aren't Harvard, they are pivoting and they're moving away from history, away from philosophy um, and adding more of these. I mean, I can mention other programs. Think about IT, especially cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think about a lot of the hard sciences. Yeah. Uh, also think about security. Do you have quite a few programs in uh, prison administration and police yeah. and security and so on? Not to mention uh, data science too, which is the other Absolutely. term of art that uh, it's almost yeah. like a cash cow for a university to, to throw their hat in the ring because they know that there's market demand there. Well, and, there is uh, market demand and the, and the demand is just going to keep growing because right. we, we keep generating more data, which means we have to have more methods of, of managing it. Hence degree yeah. Of yeah, yeah. Preservation is a nightmare problem that we're nowhere near beginning to address. Right. So I, I think you know higher education is kind of just shuffling across the curriculum right now. Right. Um, and, and, I, and I guess that, you know, I, I think we'll want to pivot maybe a little more towards some of the scenarios you outline in, in academia next. But I think the point that you're making that I want to make sure I understand, too, is that there are aspects of higher ed that have those faster cycle times so that they can be experimental and iterative and innovative. And it's easy to dismiss that. But like that is happening really throughout the, the higher ed ecosystem. And um, maybe one of the things that we can look to do uh, on this show and love to get your perspective is to, how do we showcase and highlight where the model is being reinvented and it is sort of being done so in a modern, maybe future thinking way within higher ed. Yeah. Examples to find. Yeah. And, um, and one problem is that higher education is so disintegrated. We don't have mm-hmm. Individual states, you know, rarely have a thoroughly organized state system. And when they do, they've got lots of private institutions, which are completely independent. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. as a whole, and we, we, we only started really doing national policy in higher ed in the 1960s. Right. Uh, so it's pretty light. I mean, it's, it's hard to keep up with that. But the, the one thing that we're running into, though, I mean, we, we are addressing a lot of problems. I mean, I'm very excited about things like open education resources, which yep. give people to cut the cost of textbooks and materials. But one thing that we haven't solved, even with the adjunctification of the professoriate, is the real cost problem. And right. And, right. The fact is that if you want an education, you have to pay for trained experts. Right. I mean, the, one of the things about adjuncts is that they often have PhDs or near PhDs. Sure. But you also have to pay for time. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't have a good way of speeding that up. Right. Um, and so that is simply going to cost money, much like it does in, in similar fields, like it does. In, right. Uh, in live music or like it right. medicine. Well, you know, I, I analogize to uh, the rent is too damn high. The, the tuition is too damn high. There is a reductive way of looking at it. That applies to um, some universities. So if you look at a lot of the elite institutions, you know, you think about say Stanford or UT Austin or mm-hmm. Princeton, and they can set that tuition you know, incredibly high and people, yeah. will, pay. Right. Like people will move to Manhattan or San Francisco. Right. Too high. The difference, though, the difference 
is that that published tuition is largely a fantasy. Right. Because we have what's, you know, listeners may not follow this, but it, we have a discount rate. That is you know, what a typical student or median student actually pays. So if your campus costs $60,000 a year, if that's the tuition price, it may be that you discount tuition, say, 50%, so that median student only pays 30000 which means at one end, you have someone who's extremely wealthy, uh, who is paying uh, the full freight, and then you have someone who is uh, much less wealthy, who's paying nothing or almost right. nothing. The Economist magazine said this is how higher ed in the U.S. means tests students. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that's one of the things. So imagine, like, you know, if we go back to the apartment analogy that you, that you brought up, yeah. you know, imagine like a complete free scale of pricing for rent based on whoever comes in and what their income is. I mean, that's very, very tricky to uh, organize, but we do right. it. And so on the one hand, that sounds great. I mean, it's, it's a way in which higher education is adapting to the changed reality of increased income and wealth inequality. Right. Um, it's a way of, of maintaining access to higher education for the people who can least afford it. Right. But the downside is every business analyst I talk to thinks this is unsustainable, that we yeah. can't keep uh, discounting like this. Right. Um, this is a kind of price war, which leads right. to people losing badly. Right. Uh, the other thing is we don't have a really good way of supporting a lot of the first um, generation students, a lot of the poorer students right. who start off. Yep. And we're starting to address that now, but we've kind of maxed out uh, all the students who uh, are uh, coming from parents, at least one of whom has post-secondary experience. Yep. Now we want to get more and more. Remember I began by talking about increasing the quality and the quantity of higher education. Well, now mm-hmm. we want to go to who haven't been to college, whose parents were never at college, whose families right. never been to college. Right. It's tricky. Uh, yeah. it's, very, it's very difficult to do that. And that costs more money. You have to spend more money on counseling and advising and support structures and so on. Yeah. So uh, on the one hand, I'm not as worried about a disruptive threat, but I am really worried about higher education sustainability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe more the, the idea that there's an increase, there's a, a more negative perception of higher ed. And I'd love to hear you talk a little more about how American perception of higher education uh, has evolved. So like that's one dimension of it. And then at the same time, understanding the return on investment of the commitment to get the degree versus uh, the level of risk you take on as an individual, whether it's through loan debt or, or other components. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I can start by talking about debt and how that's changed things. I do an exercise with my academic audiences. So when I work with librarians, faculty, administrators, and so on, I ask the audience, how many of you are still paying off your student loans? And usually it depends on the crowd. Between a third to two thirds of the audience will raise their hands. And that alone is interesting. Uh, As someone on Twitter said today, it's important to remember that uh, President and First Lady Obama both were paying off student loans when they became president and first lady. But what's also interesting is to look at the people whose hands didn't go up and how often they're shocked and amazed. And these mm-hmm. are academics, right? mm-hmm. not, not non-academics. And so the, the huge bolus of student debt that we shifted to, that $1.6 plus trillion, no one in the world is doing this. We're the only ones. So mm-hmm. you can feel a little American exceptionalist pride right there. Yeah. But this is, this is an interesting problem in all kinds of ways. I mean, it's a humanitarian problem. It's impacting the economy in that mm-hmm. if paying off that much in student loans, you're not paying, you're not spending money on other things, which include capital investments. So it may be that student loans is helping depress car sales and home purchases. 
It's also impacting demographics because people with a, a giant pool of student loan are less likely to have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're having these interesting, you know, side effects that are being, you know, ricochet that go around. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I, I think that's one part of the problem is, is the sheer size of that. But we don't have a good way around it. See, that one of the huge developments that happened over the past 50 years that's largely been unremarked on is that we financialized a lot of the U.S. economy. That is, mm. more and more of the U.S. economy is taken up by financial services. And, mm. and for me, one of the most mind-boggling milestones of this was in the 1990s when uh, General Motors' GMAC finance wing made more money than the company did actually making cars. Mm. And now you know, we have the financial sector being this behemoth. Why this matters, in part, it matters because it shapes student uh, careers and students' sure. pathways. But it's also how we decide to finance higher ed. We used to have a public higher education sector that was pretty robust in terms of state financing. Yes. Whereas uh, an individual university or college would get 60, 70% of its funding from the state capital. Mm-hmm. And that's plummeted. I mean, the majority of campuses don't get the majority of their financing from the state. And you hear stories about in Pennsylvania where a university gets less than 10% of its funding. My alma mater, the University of Michigan, it's, it's former president, Duderstadt, once said, he used to speak of Michigan being a state-supported uh, institution. Then he called it a state-located institution. <laughs> and now he called it a state-molested institution. <laughs> and, and that seems about right. Okay, it's an exaggeration, but that, that amount has, has, has really happened. So how can, fa- how can higher education compensate? And loans were the only way forward. That and, of course, cutting the number of faculty with tenure. So you, right. get, you, know, you get a cheaper product. That huge shift of financialization is something that's really, really hard to go back from. I mean, historically, a lot of yeah. countries have done this, like uh, Holland, Britain, some of the Italian city states like Genoa and Venice. It's been it's very difficult to unbuild that. Mm. Um, and in terms of higher education, we don't really have an alternative. Yeah. Um, if we fire a lot of staff and faculty, we lose the capacity to teach and support students. If we cut uh, compensation even more, then we may lose the ability to hire people who can actually do this kind of work. Right. Uh, I mean, it's a, we've really painted ourselves into a bad corner. Mm-hmm. And this is in part where the digital world comes in. I mean, I mentioned yeah. open education resources before. Mm-hmm. Textbook costs can be significant. They can injure a person's economic career. But generally speaking, uh, they're, they're smaller compared to tuition uh, or mm-hmm. room and board if you're, if you're a residential place. But we don't have a way technologically to smooth that. We don't have a way to reduce costs that way yet. Mm-hmm. This is where some of the work in adaptive learning is coming from. This is where yep. some work as well on uh, AI is coming from. But right now, there doesn't seem to be a way of, that, of doing that. In fact, mm-hmm. to operate a lot of these technologies costs money. Right. Uh, so right now, the best we have is that digital technology in campus improves the student experience when we do it right. But again, at a cost, we have to right. pay for hardware, licenses, mm-hmm. software, networking, and people to do all the work. Sure. So, again, I, I keep coming back to this, this theme. I think in the 21st century, this is the best time in human history for a learner to learn. Yep. We, we have access to just so much stuff. I mean, you and I were talking about, about podcasting before. And how, yeah. you know, if in order to learn how to podcast, we have so many resources. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's astonishing. But at the same time, I think this is, in many ways, the, the weirdest and perhaps the most challenging time to run a college or university since yes. probably the 1930s. It's challenging, yeah. And then I did want to talk a little bit about Academia Next, where uh, your methodology is interesting. As I understand it, there was the 
shaping of trends and then that some possible futures, even in your title, the future is plural. Can you talk a little bit about your methodology and then maybe, you know, start to spin us a few yarns about some of the possible futures for higher education you describe in the book? Absolutely. So the methodology is twofold. Uh, first, I researched a whole series of trends, more than a hundred really. And these are forces that are reshaping higher education. And these break down to different domains. So we have trends from outside the academy, the trends from demographics and economics, which we already discussed, the trends from policy, from culture, and then trends within the academy. You think about shifts in enrollment or college finance or governance, and then technology, changes in technology itself, as well as technology and campus, everything from, you know, 3D printing and social media to gaming and augmented reality. Mm -hmm. So the first part of the book is a detailed exploration of these mapping out all these trends, which nobody else has done in a book before. And mm -hmm. I think very few people have sat down and actually do this all at once. Mm -hmm. uh, when people think of futures work, they often think of you know crystal balls or free-floating speculation, but this is all firmly grounded in evidence. Every single one of those trends is borne out by multiple cases from the real world. So why use that then? Because we can extrapolate from that. We can look at these trends, think of this as a, as a video. Right, we're looking at all these trends paused in the present day. Well, let's hit, let's hit play. Let's hit fast forward and see what happens with, if these trends keep working and working. So what happens if we have 3D printing and education that really takes off? What happens if income inequality continues to shoot up? What yeah. happens if adjunctification continues and so on? And that gives us a kind of first order approximation of how the future can be a little different from the ways in the present. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's one part of the book is by looking at those trends. The second part is focusing on a few of these trends, one or two at a time, to create a scenario of the future of higher education. And each of these scenarios is based on one or two of these trends having a big impact on the world. So, for example, one of them is about the triumph of open. So what if the open paradigm really wins? I don't just mean open education resources, I include that, but also open source software, mm -hmm. open access and scholarly publication, the practice of open teaching, so we're teaching in class, sharing as much as you can online, openly with people, and so on. How does that change everything from scholarly publication to what campus IT has to focus on, to promotion, tenure, and review? I mean, in many ways, it's a better world, but it has some interesting costs. I have another scenario, speaking of healthcare, which I call healthcare nation. And whenever I present on this, I think, oh, this is a really futuristic scenario. And the audience go, oh, no, we're living in this right now. <laughs> So the idea is what, what happens if, if healthcare becomes the dominant sector of the economy? You know, like yeah. 1950s and 60s, it was manufacturing, right? What if healthcare becomes the, the lion's share of the economy? Well, you think about how that changes, you know, how pre-med programs grow in higher ed. Uh, you think about how grad programs, of course, expand. You think that in, maybe in secondary school, you have what you could think of as pre-med programs, but also how it begins to expand and grow into other fields as well, how some people in other fields, start teaching into it, more medical ethics and philosophy, more history, yep. healthcare, and so on. And then how does that change a campus uh, infrastructure? I mean, you have to, for example, build out extremely uh, wide pipes for bandwidth because medical files can be absolutely enormous. Yep. You think of security in a new way and so on. A third scenario is based on what some call mixed or expanded reality. So just to go back a little bit technologically, in the 1990s, we invented the terms augmented reality and virtual reality. So uh, virtual reality is when you create a, a virtual world or a virtual object and you experience it through a computer. Augmented reality is the flip. This is when you take the digital content and you pin it to the physical world. 
So if you've ever used uh, Yelp or if you've ever walked around the city using Google Maps, that's an example. But there are more and more complicated versions of augmented reality. There are games like Pokemon Go. Yeah. There's, there's geographical tools like IBM had this nifty thing for the Wimbledon tennis tournament in Britain where you could point your phone around the horizon and it right. would add text to every object you looked at so you could see where you were going. This yeah. is a gift shop, this is a bathroom, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so VR and AR are now growing rapidly in all kinds of ways. What happens if you combine them? Microsoft calls this mixed reality, which is a term yep. I like. Others have been calling it extended or expanded reality, which, which works as well. So what happens if we really just press fast forward on that trend and how does that shape campus? And you imagine coding a campus, giving a kind of laminated layer of yep. virtual content that is embedded in the physical world. So you can imagine mm -hmm. students creating enormous dragons or robots and battling across the quad. I mean, you can imagine students being able to access faculty and staff information by pointing their head at a building and seeing sure. who's there, who's not. You can imagine people doing research this way and teaching. So, I just really expand on that, and that's another example. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. I mean, you're really spinning some yarns to my point where um, one of the LARC questions I had was about science fiction, but as a futurist, I'm always curious how futurists feel about science fiction and how it sounds as though the way you attacked creating some of these scenarios was a little bit of extrapolation, but a little bit of uh, spinning a yarn, doing a little bit of science fiction. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think science fiction is the essential literature for the 21st century. I mean, if you're not paying attention to science fiction, you're, you're really not suited for this century. Um, and people in, in, in the future's work love SF. We use it all the time. We make some of it. There are SF writers and creators who are full-time professional futurists. And it, it just, it makes all kinds of sense. And I mean, science fiction is in many ways not great at prediction. When it gets something right, it's extraordinary. I mean, you, you look at Jules Verne's uh, From the Earth to the Moon, Around the Moon, which has the moonshot taking off from Florida, landing in uh, a great ocean. I mean, that's pretty good. You know, that's a pretty yeah. good you know, There's a book that I, I really enjoy by John Brunner uh, called The Shockwave Rider, where in the future, people use computers connected to each other via phone lines to, you know, to do gambling, to do communication, to have online learning. Mm. For 1970, that's pretty good. Yeah, um, yeah. But generally, I think it's not so much the prediction so much as it is giving us the habits of mind to think about the future being different, uh, to yep. give us the imaginative power. But it's also not, it's not fantasy. I, I love fantasy, don't get me wrong. But it's always grounded in the real world. I mean, science right. fiction is always about that. You know, what if you, know, you invent the, a machine? How does it play out in the real world? And that, I think that intersection is very, very powerful. And there are, there's a small subgenre of science fiction that's always been concerned about education. I mean, you can think about some of the classic novels like Dune or Ender's Game, which are about yep. education in a lot of ways. There are a lot of stories like this. I, I hope if I can scrape you out of the time to push out an anthology of these kind of stories. I, yeah. I, I think it's crucial just to give you that habit of mind to be able to think about the future being different. But also, when I, when I mentioned the world, in some cases, we think about science fiction as considering the world in terms of physics, which is great. You know, what if we invent a spaceship? Well, yeah. how does it work on the dark side of the I'm moon? Still waiting for, I'm waiting for my hoverboard. It's, it's been a really long time. I know. But, but at the same time, though, with your hoverboard, science fiction teaches you to think about how this interacts with people. Mm -hmm. So if you have everyone with hoverboards, do we have licenses? I mean, who gets to? Right. Uh, do we have art forms that emerge, like with skating um, and skate punk? 
Uh, right. How do we uh, figure out one one science fiction writer once said it's easy to predict the car. The hard thing is to predict a traffic jam. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you know it's the same kind of thing. Is we have to keep thinking about the human. I mean, people often say Frankenstein is the first science fiction novel. It's not, but it really is kind of the epicenter of science fiction. It's really, and, and the key thing about that is not just figuring out how to make life, but how to treat it and, you know, how to respond to it. Yeah. Every great science fiction story always takes you back to the human, which right. makes you think what happens to higher education in the year 2030 or the year 2040. Yeah. Come back to these faculty members, these students, these librarians, these academic leaders, the custodians, these adjuncts who make it work and that's who we have to keep coming back to yeah that's really interesting uh memo to self bring up science fiction early in the conversation with brian next time because i think i think we could go go in many many really interesting directions around all of this we are coming coming up close to our time and i'd love to hear from you just more broadly and we talked a lot about higher education but i think you were hinting at this golden golden age for the learner Anything uh, sort of along that vein to maybe end on somewhat of a hopeful note, like where, where are we entering uh, maybe a golden age uh, for the learner and are there trends that you see emerging that, that maybe are worth noting on that front? Yeah, there's two related trends that always, always hearten me. When we were kids, if you wanted to uh, create a, an audio program, uh, you would have to own a radio station or you'd have to go through a long educational cycle to get to the point where you could help work on audio programs. Yes. Same is true of writing a novel right. um, with a publisher and so on. And so we are now at the stage of just unleashed creativity. And, and some, of the, some of the digitally enabled creativity we might despise, we might wish we'd gone to our graves without ever having seen, but some of it's really interesting, some of it's really good. And it all finds audiences, which I, I think is, is fantastic. And that changes education because now we have to recognize that students are makers. I mean, students have always made stuff. I mean, you think yep. of the proverbial uh, elementary school kids drawing, which is um, magnetically attached to a uh, refrigerator. Right. Um, you know, we've all written assignments in blue books or we've taken quizzes and written stuff or we've done performances. But now the often ephemeral digital world lets us make that more permanent and yep. more shareable. And that changes how we do teaching and I think really productive ways. Mm -hmm. Treating students as makers, I think, is really liberating for students and great for their learning. Mm -hmm. Related to that, I think, this is a hypothesis of mine, I've been, I've been trying to test it, so far I'm pretty successful. I think whenever we invent a new communication medium, we figure out new ways of telling stories with it. This is true of radio, of TV, of print magazines. The only exception I can find so far is 8-track. I don't think we ever did this with 8-track. <laughs> But we did it with long playing records. I mean, if you think right. about how we shifted from singles to LPs, how that enabled the creation of things like concept albums. You know, totally, yeah. You know, Tommy or Jeff Wayne's Great War of the Worlds, right? Um, right. And I, I think this is, I know this is happening now as we make stories with computer gaming, through social media, through mobile devices. And again, I, I think that's great for the human race. That much storytelling I think is awesome, especially since mm -hmm. it's, it's often personal or individual or based in the group. But it also matters for education because telling a story, creating a story is a really different way to approach content that you're working with. And it is in many ways dizzying and daunting, yet empowering. And it teaches you things that you wouldn't otherwise know. I mean, trying to make what makes a good story. That's a whole other body of knowledge. And then if you're doing with digital technologies, if you're making with audio or video or you know, whatever, if you learn those technologies, 
And the result is you get to explore your voice in a mm. new way. Yeah. All of what you're making, I find that tremendously liberating. So that combination of storytelling and making, those are two of the things that I find just absolutely heartening and exciting about education moving forward. That was fantastic. Always leave them laughing, right? Leave on a good note. That was uh, truly inspirational. And I'm picking up what you're putting down. I definitely think those seem spot on. Ryan, just for anyone who wants to get more of you, hear more of this, learn more about what you're talking about, any recommendations where they should look? Sure. Well, if you're looking for books, you want to look for Academia Next, The Futures of Higher Education, available from Johns Hopkins University Press. I blog pretty ruthlessly at brianalexander.org. I'm on Twitter as Brian Alexander. And again, it's Brian with a Y, B-R-Y-A-N. And I have a kind of overall site for my digital work called the Future of Education Observatory. Just go to mm. futureofeducation.us. And go. there, my blog, you can find links to my writing, to my monthly uh, trends analysis, to my weekly video conference, and all kinds of good stuff. And please say hi. I would love to hear from you. Awesome. As you may have gleaned, Brian is a prolific resource in the space, someone worth tracking. Check out his book, check out all of the ideas that he has out there. He's definitely someone that has been a thought leader that we've been looking to on trending in education. I'm very happy to have him on. And, and to our listeners, uh, thanks for listening to Brian and you'll continue to get great content like this. Subscribe to us, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn, and we'll be back again soon on trending in education.